morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm so glad to be with you today. We are rounding out our series, Pure Trash, where we are taking down purity culture and unpacking all of the harm that it has caused so many of us. Today, we are doing the hard work of of crafting together a sexual ethic that is biblically informed, queer-informed, feminist, and radical. And this is important and holy work that we do today. But before we get into the specifics of that, I have something that I want to share with you. Yesterday was my daughter's first birthday. We made it! (laughs) Micah turned one yesterday, and it has been such an incredible experience being her parent. She calls me Baba, which makes my heart so warm and big when I hear her call it out. But before she was born, it was a real struggle talking about what Micah would call me as her non-binary parent. There are no common terms that are agreed upon in our culture and society, and honestly, that's all I wanted. Some folks want a unique name, they want to play or experiment with that relationship, but I'm not going to lie, I didn't actually want that. I didn't want a special name, I wanted an average, recognizable name. I wanted her to see her relationship with me reflected in books and TV shows. I wanted her friends to know who she meant when she called me her Baba. I wanted her to not have to explain herself all of the time. I wanted something simple. But that wasn't an option. Because queer people, trans people, non-binary people, we've been erased from our culture and from so many cultures. That doesn't mean that we haven't existed always, but it means that over time, empire has stripped us of our identities, of our languages, as supremacy culture does to so many marginalized people. Trans people in particular, historically, in some spaces were venerated as spiritual leaders, but then over time became burned as witches. And with that terrorism, The wisdom and culture of trans and non-binary people was erased or buried or destroyed over and over and over again. And so, we are in a place of having to build something new. Having to make choices about who we want to be, how we want to talk about ourselves, not able to pull from our trans and non-binary ancestors. We have to build, and so we do that pulling from other cultures and identities that we hold. Sometimes we build off of elements of traditions we hold in common with cishet people, and some of it has to come from scratch. So from scratch, ba is one of the simplest and earliest sounds that kids normally make. Now for Micah, it came after g-k-n-a, and of course, dad, 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 dad. <laughs> but also, we wanted to pull from the traditions of how children talk to parents and caregivers. It's common to have a special name be a double syllable, easy to say, like the other people in Micah's life, her dada, her Nana, her papa. A lot of non-binary parents use terms from other languages, other identities they hold. Now, I don't have any connections to specific cultures, 
But I looked globally. I looked to language generally. And Baba is a common family term on at least four different continents in several different languages, variously meaning father, grandmother, auntie. And it felt great as a non-binary person to see so many genders reflected in that term. So I don't have what I longed for, which is a common, recognizable name. But I do have a name that we've built together, a name, a word, a sound that represents Micah and my relationship. And as queer and trans people are doing this work together, we slowly come to consensus on things. Baba is increasingly common, as are Mada, Maddie, Zaza, which is the family name I use with my nephews. And like they, them as pronouns or neo-pronouns, we have come up with new language. New language and old language, borrowed language and reclaimed language, new standards and definitions to fight for who we are, to represent ourselves to one another and to the world. We shouldn't have to do this labor. We shouldn't have to reinvent our cultural wheels. And so there is deep grief there. But we do have to do that. And there is actually also creative hope in that process. The world that we get to build together from scratch, from tradition, from our many identities and culture, we get to be who we long to be. The reason I'm telling you all of this is that we are trying to build a queer-informed, feminist, anti-racist, biblical sexual ethic. And that has existed. That has existed in many forms in many different times, but has been systematically erased by patriarchy, by oppression, by queer and transphobia, by racism. And so we've been denied the wisdom of those ancestors of the faith who have done that work before us over and over again. But we have tools to build that together here in this moment, to embody and build the kingdom, and to have a sexual ethic that we call our own. And it's not only something that we want, it's something that we need. It's a good thing. God wants you to have good things. So we have to create this ourselves. And it's an ongoing conversation. We are not the only ones in this conversation. And I'd like to get us started as a local church community, local meaning here in person and virtually, with a few basic ideas. So you may or may not know, but we actually come from the Wesleyan tradition. We are affiliated with a Methodist denomination. And so John Wesley is like one of our dudes. And part of his teachings can be uh, summarized as what's known as the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which sounds very exciting, I know. But even if you hate geometry, I promise there's something in it for you. So these are the four things that should inform our faith, our understanding of the world, and, and can be applied to all kinds of things. Um, in contrast to some other traditions that are like, hey, the tradition speaks first, last, and only. Or, for example, I grew up Lutheran. Luther was a big fan of sola scriptura, like the Bible is it, guys. And so there are different ways of going about this. But in the Wesleyan tradition, we go with four. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. 
In this series, we've been bringing a lot of scripture into this conversation. And that's something that I think maybe prior to starting this series, some of us might have been a little skeptical about. How can we have a queer-informed, feminist, anti-racist, liberating sexual ethic leaning on scripture, which is obviously full of all of these abusive texts? Well, it turns out that the scriptures actually have tons of texts and liberating teachings to draw from. They're just not the ones we've been taught or they've been twisted into something harmful. We've talked about the creation story, the idea that we have a picture of beautiful, connected, relational, and perhaps sexual ethic in the garden before the fall. What was it like? Well, in that ideal, the people there were unashamed. They were equal and mutual, though different. They were provided for, and they provided for not only one another, but all of creation. Now, we've also reoriented towards scriptures around adultery and divorce. We've unpacked Jesus' teachings about these things to understand that they are actually about accountability. And contrary to the way they've been used historically by the church to target women and vulnerable people, to say that vulnerable people are responsible for protecting themselves from harm, We've unpacked how Jesus is actually in these passages saying, hey, men in a patriarchal society, accountability is on you. You are the one with power. You are the one held accountable for keeping yourself from causing harm. And so instead of creating a mess of expectation that women and other vulnerable people are meant to both submit and also protect themselves from the impulses of the powerful, Jesus reorients us around that ethic saying, actually, you know what? If you are causing sin, if you are causing harm, if you are objectifying a person for your own gains, it's on you. Tear your eyes out before you tell that person to present themselves differently or protect themselves from your power. We've talked about the parable of the talents, understanding that our sexuality is a gift entrusted to us not to be buried in fear of some cartoonish, awful God, but invested in the trust that God wants us to have expansive sexuality, that we can get back more than we put in, than we give. When we trust God, we trust ourselves, and invest wisely with one another. Our sexuality is meant to flourish. It is a gift, not a curse. And we've talked about the Song of Songs, an erotic poem in the scriptures, a pure celebration of sexual connection, pleasure for the sake of itself, two young unmarried people delighting in their own bodies and one another, gentle and passionate, earnest and raw. We've also brought a lot of our own experience into this conversation unpacking the harm that purity culture has done, being shamed and terrified, being called pieces of gum, made to fear our bodies and the God who gave them to us. That experience informs our conversation and our sexual ethic. And we've used our reason to see how the harm and trauma that all has caused is absolutely at odds with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've got scripture, we've got experience, we've got reason. What we have left to contend with is tradition. Now, you may be wondering, like, why are we even bothering engaging the tradition? It's totally bereft. 
what we see here is the erasure of radical sexual ethics. And so we're going to have to just abandon the tradition altogether. But actually, much like queer folks are doing with names and parenting, we just have to look a little to the left. Always look a little to the left. We have a lot of tradition to pull from. Now, we may not want to pull from the conversations that are already about explicitly sexual ethics, but there's a lot of wisdom in our tradition that can inform this conversation. And the, there's a really simple set of guiding principles that I have always really appreciated in the Wesleyan tradition. John Wesley, if you ever are like, I want to learn a little bit more about this tradition or I want to learn about theology, John Wesley is one of the most accessible theologians. They called him a practical theologian because he was interested in giving tools that people could use more so than um, more kind of academic conversations. And so I, I, I really have always felt that, that Wesley would have done extremely well on Twitter. He's like succinct, he's got lists, and it's very easy to remember. So John Wesley has three general rules, and the three rules are guiding principles for ethical conversations. The rules are the following, and we'll put them on screen. Number one, do no harm. Number two, do good. Number three, stay in love with God. Now notice the difference between this and the sexual ethics that we've been taught. No premarital sex, no queer sex, no sex with anyone other than one married partner, don't show too much of your body, don't perceived, be perceived as too sexual. It reminds me of those signs that you see posted on like, like really bummer uh, establishments that are like no soliciting, no loitering, no skateboarding, no fun at all, right? It's just a list of don'ts. And honestly, lists of don'ts are not that instructive. I've been learning about parenting in the last year. One of the pieces of helpful advice that I've been given is, don't tell kids just not to do stuff. Tell them what to do. Tell them what to do. We need a sexual ethic that is more instructive, but also more flexible, more context dependent. So rather than a list of don'ts, do no harm, do good, stay in love with God is instructive and it's contextual. Notice that it's subjective. What might be harm in one situation might not be in another. What might be good in one situation might not be in another. What might help me stay in love with God might actually harm your loving relationship with God. And this is a higher level ethical conversation. The list of don'ts treats you like, not only like a child, but like a child with a parent who's not interested in instructing you how, how to be, only how not to be. Having these guiding principles, these questions, am I doing harm? Am I doing good? Am I staying in love with God? These require you to do some discerning work, require us to discern collectively as a community. It requires ongoing conversation about the nature of harm and good and love. So I want to put that set of rules, do no harm, do good, stay in love with God, in conversation again with Scripture, because we really do love Scripture here. We're not going to let Luther down either. So the Scripture we have today is Jesus also 
helping to point us towards guiding principles for ethical conversations. When Jesus is asked, like, what's the deal here? What's the most important? He basically says, you need to begin and end in one place. Love God, love neighbor as yourself. Love God, love neighbor, love self. And, and Jesus is like, that's what the whole law is about. So like, if, if ever we're interpreting the law and it doesn't come back to that, we know that we've steered horribly off course. And so I want us to think about those three relationships as well. Self, neighbor, God. And if God feels confusing, you can think about God as the relationship to all creation because God holds all things, right? So how do we make sure that all of these relationships, self to self, self to neighbor, self to God, are protected and held in love. How do we facilitate our neighbor and, and, and God, all creation, being in love also? So when we go to those rules, do no harm, do good, stay in love with God, we also need to be thinking about this triangle, self, neighbor, God, and all creation. So let's start with do no harm. How do we do no harm? Well, we know that to do no harm to God is to do no harm to all creation. That's a really, really big task. And I'm just going to name it right here. Like, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. There is no way of exiting these, uh, these systems of oppression. It can feel really terrifying right away when we get into this to say, how do we do no harm to creation when our very existence is wrapped up in systems that cause harm to people, to communities, to the earth, and to creatures. So I want to then just give us permission to say, like, none of this is going to be perfect until the kingdom is, is in its fullness. This is a guiding principle that we can't be too rigid about, so we need to do our best. What is my best effort not to do harm to God and to the creatures around me? What does that mean for our sexual ethic? How can my sexual relationships intentionally be on the lookout for harm? The harm that my relationship might cause to God or to my love of God, to the creation around me. It may be a little bit simpler to think about that with our neighbors. How can I make sure I'm not harming another person with my sexual relationship to them or to someone else? This is where we get some of those specific guidelines from Jesus, right? Jesus was experiencing a patriarchal culture in which the sexuality of men and the sexual norms around men and men's privileges versus women and women's privileges were causing immense harm. Immense harm. Jesus said, cut it out. Literally, cut your eye out. Jesus said, you need to be accountable for not causing harm. And when you do cause harm, you need to intervene immediately to stop causing harm. This is part of our responsibility to examine the choices that we are making in our sexual relationships and say, am I harming my neighbor? And finally, we need to examine that question with ourselves. Am I causing harm to myself? That part is really critical and cannot be left out. And believe it or not, it's actually one of the most challenging things for many, many people. 
How are my expectations for myself around my sexuality geared more towards other people, my neighbor, creation, than myself? Because these things actually all need to be held in relationship. My sexual practices, my sexual boundaries need to make sure I'm not causing harm to myself. And this is where we feel the urgency, the ethical urgency of challenging queer phobia and other forms of harm, patriarchy, ableism, racism, because not only are these harming other people, but we can't start with a sexual ethic from a grounded place if we are participating in harm against ourselves. Now, I know that many of us have been taught to be self-sacrificing and to say, well, I'll put myself last. But Jesus puts us in direct relationship, neighbor as self. Those things need to be equal. And research actually suggests that that's how it works best. I found myself recommending this book again to someone this week, and so I thought it was a great opportunity to bring it up for the whole community. This is the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. Uh, by Kristen Neff. And mindful self-compassion is a set of practices that I have found really healing for myself and also for many other people. But it's also filled with research. The authors talk about how people really resist self-compassion a lot of times. We have a lot of negative um, ideas about caring for ourselves. And so they support it with research. And one of the pieces of research that they put out is to say research shows that self-compassionate people, that is people who are trying to love themselves, trying to do no harm to themselves, tend to be more caring and more supportive in romantic relationships, are more likely to compromise in relationship conflicts, and are more compassionate and forgiving towards others. The love that we show ourselves the limit we place on that is a limit we place on the love we can show to others and to God. And so if we free ourselves to protect ourselves from harm, we free ourselves to do the liberating work of love in the rest of our community as well. And so I just want to put it out there. If you have internalized messages about sexuality that are causing you to refrain from or engage in sex in any particular ways that are harming you, start with self-compassion for yourself. If you're an asexual person and you have internalized messages that say that you need to be sexual in order to have value, the most important beginning place for your do no harm in your sexual ethic is to say, I'm not going to participate in sexuality because it harms me. If you are queer and you are trying, trying, praying to be straight, your sexual ethic has to begin with letting go of that harm, with disengaging from that harm. And there, the list goes on, right? What are the ways that we have participated in our own harm and how can we have it stop with us? How can we create different choices and boundaries to stop the harm that we are causing ourselves or that we have participated in, in an attempt to appease neighbor or our perceptions of God. Your self matters. What about the next guiding principle? Do good. Do good with your sex life. 
whatever your sexuality is, how can it produce the most good? Now again, we've been taught to think about the good of sexuality in extremely narrow terms. Usually it's procreative. And like, if that's part of your sexuality, great. But like, there are so many other good things about good sex. And one of the things that we have seen in the scriptures is that good sex, which is sex between people who are mutually engaged, who are consenting, good sex produces pleasure and connection. We were talking about this at a Holy Spirit recently, um, where we gather at a bar or a beer garden and talk theology. And I asked, what are the things that you wish you had been taught about sex? And one of the things that somebody said was, it doesn't all have to be like so profound. Sex can be fun. Sex can be fun. And that is a good, right? It's got to be held in conversation with the other pieces. It's got to do no harm. But there is plenty of sex to be had that does no harm and is good, is fun, is delightful. Pleasure is a good thing. God wants you to have good things. Delight and fun and connection, embodiment, these things are holy. They contribute to right relationship. They help us to love ourselves. They help us to love others. They help us to love all of creation. So ask yourself, when you are in a sexual ethical dilemma, after you ask, does this do harm to myself, to my neighbor, to God and all creation, ask yourself, does this do good? How can I maximize good in my sexual relationships? How can I bring delight and pleasure to myself, to the world, to creation? And finally, how do we stay in love with God? Again, you can think about in love with God as being within the bounds of love or in, in love, in love with God, in love with all creation, connected, joy-filled, justice-oriented. How do you be in love? What kinds of relationships help you cultivate love in your life? Love between you and all things. What kinds of sexual relationships open you up to the world? It can be a really instructive thing to examine things that have you fall out of love, things that make you isolate, things that make you feel shame. These things are against the ways of love. So when you want an answer to a sexual ethical query, ask, does this help me be in love with the world? Does this help me to be in love with my community, with my God, with myself? We want to be people of love. This is the way of Jesus. How might approaching it with just these three simple frameworks, do no harm, do good, stay in love, how might that change how you think about a biblical sexuality? Now I want to acknowledge that love is a confusing word. Love is a catch-all for a lot of things in our culture, and it's been twisted and abused a lot. Even just the phrase, tough love, is often a cover for violence done in the name of your own good. I know many people here in this room have experienced tough love, or things that family members or others have claimed is a biblical love stance. 
So sometimes picking another word can be really helpful. What do we mean when we say love? Stay in love with God. Be loving towards God, self, and neighbor. For me, love means a whole lot of things. And some of those things come more easily. Love is passionate. Yeah. Love is fierce. Love pursues justice. Those things are a little bit more easy for me to connect into. So I think about what I need reminding of. And one that's really grounding for me, a scripture, in fact, that's really grounding for me, is the phrase, love is patient, love is kind. In my office, I have some of my daughter's artwork up. It is a footprint that I believe an adult drew into a bee. Probably not her at, you know, eight months old when she did this. And then the word kind. Be kind. And it's so simple and sweet, but this is the heart of love for me. Be kind. I hope to be a kind person. I hope to be a loving person. And I don't always do that well, but that's something I can always come back to. How is my sexuality kind? How can I be kind to myself? It is kind to release shame. It is kind to encourage exploration and play. It is kind to facilitate connection and intimacy. It is kind to do the work of justice, to release myself and others from structures of oppression that are not for us. It is kind to reclaim the love and biblical stories of God who are there to point me towards who I am. Be kind. What are your words? What are the words beyond love that describe it for you? Scripture has so many. You can go to that passage, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it is not rude, it, is, uh, it perseveres. You can go to the scriptures that say, love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Does your sexual ethic leave you bold or fearful? Do your sexual choices fill you with joy or fear? Where does that fear come from? Because that fear isn't coming from love. We have to build this together. And so we're going to have to choose our words and have our conversations. But a sexual ethic and the confidence that comes with it to be sexual or not with one another in ways that do no harm, that do good, that help us to stay in love with God, that's a nice thing. And God wants you to have nice things. Like the kingdom, we're just going to have to build it together. Will you pray with me? God of all creation, we long to be and stay in love with you, with our neighbors, with ourselves. Help us to be people of love. Help us to identify harm and to interrupt those mechanisms of harm while we offer accountability to the harm we've participated in. God, help us to do good. 
And may our sexuality, may our conversations about sex, our choices about sex, the sex we have or don't have in our lives, may those things help build a kingdom of joy, connection, liberation, and justice. Help us to shed the horrible messaging that does harm to us and to our sexuality. Help us to do the good work of reclaiming our bodies and our connection. And help us to do all of those things in love. In your name we pray. Amen.